Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 120th episode of the Not A Cast titled We The People Part 2, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 9, in which Tyrion takes out his rage on Joffrey as the city rises up against him and his family. At least Sansa makes that out okay, I guess that's a good thing, right? That's something. You take your silver linings where you can find them in situations this bleak. And bleak is a really good word to describe this chapter. Bleak and chunky, as we talked about in many episodes we just recorded. <laughs> so, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Night Wolf, the ship that stalks the Seven Seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Hero of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, the Herald of the Golden Tooth, Mace, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake, assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the Beast and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Setfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord of Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Tucker, and Proud, Soy Boy of Summer Hall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Raywood Commander of the Thedes and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Possibly Not Serving as a Spy for us, several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Black Fire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldiver, the waiter for T.Wow, A.A. Bront, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shamal the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgo. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Still Shepherd in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Dar- Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, who believes that the sudden vacation plans made by certain witnesses clears him of all charges, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of, of Highgarden, Lord Paramore the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell, and finally Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Thank you, counselors, very, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three documentary novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. 
Our question this week comes from Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, one of our small council patrons, who asks, Hi guys, I had a question for the podcast. In this age of terrors and wonders, do you think the Alchemist Guild will come back to prominence? Also, what houses, if any, do you think have taken them back into service already? I can imagine the High Towers and the Iron Bank would be immediate customers of their services, and for some reason I feel like the newly formed House Thin slash Karstark <laughs> would also quickly adopt their services. Love the cast and kind regards. Well, thank you so much for the question, and what do you think, Jeff? Do you think the, the Alchemist Guild is going to return to prominence as a lot of magical elements reach their payoff in the rest of the story? I don't think so. I I, <laughs> I I think the Alchemist Guild is going to meet a bitter, fiery end at the end of the series known as The Song of Ice and Fire when Danny kicks off the wildfire that will uh, send King's Landing into a, a kabooming, uh, horrible spectacle, which would be beautiful and terrible at the same time. Um, I... I, I I think like um, this is one of those things. Uh, I'm I was never like a Dungeons and Dragons player, so I mean like when I hear like guilds, like I immediately think of like ooh, we're in D and D territory. I don't know what the fuck we're talking about here, but I know what the Alchemist Guild is, and I because I've read the Song of Ice and Fire. Well, read had the other books read to me, and so uh, so I have to. So I didn't generally to look askance at some of this kind of more overtly D and D references there. I think they're interesting to the story and Tyrion story in particular, and likely to the end game of a song of ice and fire. But I don't think that the alchemists are going to play a major role at the end of this thing. And the, the Thens and the car starts the new house that, that just got formed at the end of a dance of dragons when John married them together. Yeah. I mean, I could see why they would, they might want to utilize the services of the alchemists, but nah, I think they're, they're pretty much doomed and gone by the end of the series. What do you think? I agree. I think I think about the alchemists the same way I think about the shadow babies. I think they were here to be kind of magical showstopper act in the second book specifically and lay the groundwork kind of thematically in terms of tone and imagery for more serious and larger stakes developments later on. And the way a lot of Clash of Kings plot lines do, the way we talk about Stannis and Renly kind of setting the groundwork for Danny versus Young Grift, they're kind of being worked out on a smaller scale here to kind of smash inward on a larger scale towards the more climactic moments of the story. And yeah, I think that, you know, the Alchemist Guild ultimately is to contribute to lay the groundwork kind of literally beneath King's Landing for what happens when Danny comes to King's Landing later in the story. And I think that's what's going to be their ultimate import. Yeah, you know, like the high towers, I think, are a magical element unto themselves that kind of build on these earlier magical elements in the story. And certain elements George, you know, puts in early on to add as examples and other ones he brings in later on to kind of, you know, add as more the, the, the spark for the climax of the story, like stuff in Old Town, which I think is going to be actually fairly central to the kind of magical endgame of the series. So I agree. I think that the alchemists like the Shadow Babies like even Jock and Hagar himself, although he seems to be coming back in. These are elements just to, to, to let you know how the magical world of A Song of Ice and Fire works, I think, more than they are the serious, important aspects of Endgame. Agreed. And and I think they're supposed to highlight something that will, is, is a big part of what George is doing in these first couple of books, which is to set the groundwork and foundation for the future major magical elements, which will be kicking off come The Winds of Winter and, and A Dream of Spring especially. Well put, sir. So thank you so much again, Lieutenant Glenn, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, access to our Not A Slack at the two highest tiers, and bonus episodes like part three of our four-part episode on The Forsaken, the, the Aaron Dampier release chapter, The Winds of Winter, which, if you're listening to this on the general release day, is coming this week for all poor fellow and above patrons. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited to get more in depth on the dense, impactful, and completely fucking terrifying second half of Dan Paris' Winds of Winter chapter. 
Can't wait. And I'm also terrified at the same time. <laughs> but enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion, he had encountered a very minor civil disturbance after wishing a fond farewell to Brisella. Let's find out how the Lannisters react to this extremely small, very insignificant civil disturbance in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 9, Part 2. Tyrion doesn't remember getting off his horse, but he sees Manded Moore helping Joffrey down. Cersei, Tommen, and Lancel come through with Marin and Boros behind them. Sir Balin Swan rolls in without his helmet. Horace Redwine brings in a Lady Tannis shrieking over lollies. And Lord Giles stammers about the High Septon being pulled from his litter by the shrieking crowd. Preston Greenfield was allegedly on his way back to save the High Septon, according to Jalabar Zoe. Sure hope that works out. It won't. Tyrion was dimly aware of a maester asking if he was injured. He pushed his way across the yard to where his nephew stood, his dung-encrusted crown askew. Traitors, Joffrey was babbling, said, I'll have their heads, I'll... The dwarf slapped his flushed face so hard the crown flew from Joffrey's head. Then he shoved him with both hands and knocked him sprawling. You blind, bloody fool. They were traitors, Joffrey scoped the crowd. They called me names and attacked me. You set your dog on them. What did you imagine they would do? Bend the knee meekly while the hound lopped off some limbs? You spoiled, witless little boy. You've killed Clegane and gods know how many more. And yet you've come through unscathed. Damn you. And he kicked him. It felt so good he might have done more. But Sir Mandon Moore pulled him off as Joffrey howled. And then Bronn was there to take him in hand. Cersei knelt over her son while Sir Balin Swan restrained Sir Lancel. Tyrion wrenched free of Bronn's grass. How many are still out there? He, get, he shouted to no one and everyone at the same time. Lady Tannis says that Lolly's out there and someone needs to go save her. And everyone promptly ignores her. Preston Greenfield and Aaron Santigar are missing too. And Tyrek. Tyrek? Who's he? Yes, Tyrek Lannister is gone. And also Sansa Stark. Tyrion demands to know where she is. Joffrey reports that she was next to him, but he has no idea where she is now. Tyrion pressed blunt fingers into his throbbing temples. If Sansa Stark had come to harm, Jaime was as good as dead. Tyrion demands to know why Mandon Moore hadn't bothered to protect Sansa since you were fucking assigned to protect her, man. Uh, well, he only thought of Joffrey. Cersei says, this is well and good, but maybe you boys can go out and find Sansa, pretty please? Lady Tanda also demands that they find Lollies too, and she is again promptly ignored. Boros Blunt says, uh, maybe they don't go in with their white cloaks, huh? Tyrion had stomached all he cared to. The others, take your fucking cloaks. Take them off if you're afraid to wear them, you bloody oaf. But find me Sansa Stark or I swear I'll have Shaga split that ugly head of yours in two to see if there's anything inside but black pudding. Sir Boros rages that Tyrion would dare call him ugly and he starts to raise his sword. But Bronn pushes Tyrion behind him and then Cersei tells everyone to quit it. Boros is going out in the crowd. But then, thankfully, Sansa and Sandra Clegane roll into the courtyard. Tyrion called out to her. Are you hurt, Lady Sansa? Blood was trickling down Sansa's brow from a deep gash on her scalp. They they were throwing things, rocks and filth, a eggs. I tried to tell them I had no bread to give them. A, a man tried to pull me from a saddle. The hound killed him. I, I think his arm. Her eyes widened and she put a hand over her mouth. He, he cut off his arm. Clegane lifted her to the ground. His white cloak was torn and stained and blood seeped through a jagged tear on his left sleeve. The little bird's bleeding. Someone take her to the back of her cage and see that cut. And see to that cut. Mr. Franken scurried forward to obey. They did for Sanagar. The hound continued. Four men held him down and took turns bashing at his head with a cobblestone. Cobblestone. A gutted one. Not that it did Sir Aaron much good. Lady Tanda asks about her daughter, but Sanders says he never saw her. He wants to know where his horse is, though. Motherfuckers are going to pay if that horse got hurt. Tyrion says the horse was running with them for a bit, but they lost the horse somewhere along the way. Fire! A voice screamed from atop the barbican. My lords, there's smoke in the city. Flea bottoms of fire! 
Tyrion was unutterably weary, but there was no time for despair. Bronn, take as many men as you need to go see that water wagons are not molested. Gods be good, the wildfire. If any of that blaze should reach that, we can lose all the flea bottle if we must, but on no account must the fire reach the guild hall of the alchemists. Is that understood? Clegane, you'll go with them. For half a heartbeat, Tyrion thought he glimpsed fear in the hound's dark eyes. Fire, he realized. The others take me, of course. He hates fire. He's tasted it too well. The look was gone an instant, replaced by Clegane's familiar scowl. I'll go, he said, though not by your command. I need to find that horse. Tyrion orders the other three Kingsguard knights to ride escort to a herald to tell people to stay indoors. If the people are out after Evenfall, kill them. Yay. Baron says they should really stay by the king to keep him safe. Yeah, that's it. That's totally why they don't want to go out there. But Cersei says that they need to obey Tyrion or be tried for treason. Wow, Cersei, kind of an interesting point there. But about those gold cloaks, but, but about those white cloaks, should they wear them? They really need to get the answer to this question. Go naked for all I care. It might remind the mob that you're men. They're like to have forgotten after seeing the way you behaved out there in the street. Tyrion let his sister rage. His head was throbbing. He thought he could smell smoke, though perhaps it was just the scent of his nerves fraying. Tyrion heads up to the Tower of the Hand and he finds the Stone Crows guarding and he finds Stone Crows on a door guard. He orders them to find Timot, but they refuse, saying they're Stone Crows and they don't deal with burn men. Okay, fine. Get Shaga then. Nope. Sorry, Tyrion. Shaga is sleeping off a hangover. Well, then fucking wake him, Tyrion says. Shaga turns up a little while later and then Tyrion chastises him for sleeping while the city was burning. Yeah, well, maybe the, sh- maybe the city should have better drinking water. He can't drink that muddy, shitty shit. He has to drink ale and wine. Has to. Tyrion's eyes rolling into the back of his head at this point tells Shaggy to head over to the manse that he's had Shay put up in and he's to go there and protect her at all costs. The huge man smiled, his teeth a yellow crevasse in the, ha- in the hairy wildness of his beard. Shaga will fetch her here. Just see that no harm comes to her. Tell her I will come as soon as I may. This night, perhaps, or on the morrow for a certainty. Evening brings no relief as the city is still in chaos. Yes, the fires are mostly gone and most of the mobs were dispersed, but Tyrion realizes he won't be seeing shade tonight. Later that night, Sir Jocelyn Bywater shows up with news while a furious Tyrion, quote, enjoys a cold supper and yelling at his servants. And the news, it ain't good. The High Septon is dead, killed by a mob who didn't much appreciate a fat High Septon while they starved. Sir Preston Greenfield, also dead, his white cloak gone red and brown from all the blood he had shed. Sir Aaron Santigar had his head turned into a red pulp. Lady Tana's daughter had been raped by half a hundred men. Tyrek Lannister was missing. The High Septon's crystal crown was missing. Nine gold Old cloaks were dead, 40 more wounded, no idea how many small folk had died or had been wounded in the melee. Tyrion orders Tyrek to be found alive or dead, as his uncle Tygett was kind to Tyrion, that is the father of Tyrek Lannister. Jocelyn says they'll find him and they'll look for the Septon's crown too. No, fuck that, don't worry about that shitty crown. When you named me to command the watch, you told me to want, you, you told me you wanted plain truth always, Sir Jocelyn said. Somehow, I have a feeling I am not going to like whatever you're about to say, Tyrion said gloomily. We held the city today, my lord, but I make no promises for the morrow. The kettle is close to boiling. So many thieves and murders are about that no man's house is safe. The bloody flux is spreading in the stews along Pisswater Bend. There's no food to be had for copper nor silver. Where before you heard only mutterings on the gutter, now there's open talk of treason in guild halls and markets. Tyrion wonders if Jaslyn needs more men, but no, that ain't the ticket. He doesn't need the bros he has. He doesn't trust the bros he has now as gold cloaks. There's some loyalists and some okay people among the new recruits, but there are more shit cloaks than good cloaks in the lot. And they're not going to hold if the city is attacked. And yeah, 
Tyrion knows this. But Jasper goes on to talk about how the Gold Cloaks are mostly small folk men themselves. They live in King's Landing, drink at the bars, they eat their food, and they fucking hate the lashes just as much as the small folk who just ride it all over your ass too. And they have good reason to hate you guys. Remember that little incident when Tywin massacred a bunch of them and then murdered Rhaegar's kids? Or remember that time that Ned Stark was executed by Joffrey's justice? People want Robert back. Hell, they'd even settle for Stannis at this point. Shit's getting bad among the ranks of the loyal gold cloaks. Tyrion gets all huffy, saying, yeah, they hate the Lancers. So what? Jaslyn, giving major side-eye, says that it's not just that they hate the Lancers. They are going to turn on your family. But what about Tyrion? Do they hate him too? Jaslyn says, eh, I don't want to answer that. You talk to Varys about that. But Tyrion is asking Jaslyn. Bywater's deep-set eyes met the dwarf's mismatched ones and did not blink. You, most of all, my lord. Most of all? The injustice was like to choke him. It was Joffrey who told them to beat their dead. Joffrey who set his dog on them. How, how could they blame me? If only the Tsar knew, essentially. According to Jocelyn, it's because Joffrey has evil counselors that he acts so evilly. Cersei wasn't loved by the small folk, and no one likes Faris, but the small folk blamed Tyrion most of all. It's the timing, you see. Tyrion arrived right when the bad time started, and he had exiled Janice Slint because he was too honest. And Tyrion threw Pycelle into dungeons when he opposed Tyrion. Perhaps Tyrion probably wants to seize the Iron Throne for himself. That's what all the small folks say. Yes, and I'm a monster besides. Hideous and misshapen. Never forget that. His hand coiled into a fist. I've heard enough. We both have work to attend to. Leave me. Perhaps my lord father was right to despise me all by that year, as Tyrion thought. This is the best I can achieve. He stared down into the remains of his supper, his belly roiling at the sight of the cold, greasy capon. Disgusted, he pushed it away, shattered for pod, and sent the boy running to summon Varas and Bronn. My most trusted advisors are a eunuch and a sellsword, and my lady's a whore. What does that say of me? Bronn comes in, complaining about the gloom in the chamber and wants a fire. It's blazing by the time Varys arrives. Tyrion demands to know where Varys has been this whole time. Say, it is rather interesting that Varys was nowhere to be was nowhere around when the riot started. What was he about? About the king's business, my sweet lord. Oh, the king. Uh-huh. Which one, Varys? Hmm? Hmm? We'll talk about that later. Tyrion misses Vara's insinuation here and starts shit-talking Joffrey, stating quite controversially that Joffrey is a bad person. I know, weird to say that. And a worse king. Bronn puts in that an apprentice could rule better than Joffrey. Bronn says this, of course, while eating some of Tyrion's dinner, which just royally crawls into Tyrion's asshole. Undeterred, Bronn asks if Tyrion has any wine, and Tyrion gets angry thinking about pouring wine for some peasant like Bronn. He warns the sellsword that he's going too far. And you never go far enough, Bronn tossed the wing bone to the rushes. Everything how easy life would be if the other one had been born first. Bronn thrust his fingers inside the cape on and tore off a handful of breast. The weepy one, Tommen, seems like he'd do whatever he was told, as a good king should. A chill crept down Tyrion's spine as he realized what the seltzer was hinting at. If Tommen was king... Tommen could only become king if Joffrey died, and Tyrion was not about to kill the son of his beloved brother Jamie even if he was also Cersei's kid, too. Tyrion threatens to behead Bronn for treason, but Bronn laughs him off. Friends, said Varys, quarreling will not serve us. I beg you both, take heart. Whose? Tyrion asked sourly. He could think of several tempting choices. And that is the conclusion to A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 9. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I love this chapter, dude. I, I Action, suspense, conspiracy, drama, no romance. It's the perfect beefish <laughs> chapter, right? 
I, you know, as you pointed out uh, last week, Jeff, the riot itself only takes up a few paragraphs of this chapter. George spends more of Tyrion 9 digging into the meaning of the riot, which lives count for the powerful and which don't, which problems they prioritize and which they leave to fester, and what all of this says about the big picture politics at play and also Tyrion's individual character arc. I know I've just been repeating the phrase shadow on a wall throughout a clash of kings, <laughs> but in this part of the chapter, we see how even the most blunt and material political political action, like, say, a citywide riot, always dissolves back into what people make of it and what people are projecting into it. Well, I think like the shadow on the wall, like we say that a lot, but it's extremely important and, and vital to understanding Tyrion's story in, in A Clash of Kings and really bounding forward. And you've also been really pointing out really well how all of this violence that rises up in the city isn't random or just some angry outburst of the small folk that's coming from a place of envy or resentment. The Lannisters have soaked the rags of food hoarding, tossed them into a well of historical kerosene from Tywin Sack to Joffrey's murder of small folk just a few chapters back, and lit a match of lawless rule and tossed the match of Joffrey being out in public onto the kindling. Nothing is occurring in a vacuum here, and now the Lannisters have, rece- have and now the Lannisters have received their just desserts. But as we're going to unpack in this chapter, it's not just the guilty who suffer. In fact, Joffrey and Cersei, the two prime movers of all the lawless, tyrannical shit that's going on in King's Landing, come through relatively unscathed. But this is only the snapshot. I think we have to expand our lens to view this act within the whole of the series. We can look at it at the individual act and at the at chapter's end and look back and see whether the Joffrey and Cersei actually suffered consequences. But then we have to kind of expand out and look at the whole of A Song of Ice and Fire and see that there is a groundswell of opposition which is forming to the last rule in King's Landing. I think that's a good point. There's both the spark and the aftermath, and you have to keep them both in mind. And, uh, you know, we, we pick up on the immediate aftermath of the riot itself, of the inciting incident. The panic on the streets crashes headlong into the sudden reassurance of the walls, producing disassociation in the mind's eye of our POV, Tyrion Lannister who must rebuild his concrete-controlled world as he will have to after the Battle of Blackwater. He does not even remember getting down from his horse. Someone else comes rushing in with every blink, everyone with a fragment of the story to tell, and gradually a picture emerges, although it won't become complete, until later in the chapter with Jocelyn Bywater. Tyrion 9 descends into chaos and gradually, step by step, returns us to clarity. First, we see Joffrey coming on in. And he is merely, quote, shaken. And then we see his Kingsguard. We see that Marin has lost his cloak. Boros has blood on his blade. And then we learn of the first missing member of the party, Lawless Stokeworth, the least powerful among them. Despite the righteousness of the rioters' cause, we want bread, bastard. The consequences are not borne equally, or more to the point proportionally, by those around the neglectful king. Joffrey himself is well-guarded, and so is only temporarily spooked by what happened. Marin and Boros have merely lost the signifiers of wealth and violence. Lawless is noble-born, of course, and she eats well every day while thousands starve, but she is not in any real way a decision-maker supporting this status quo. And ironically, that's exactly why she was so exposed to the mob's violence. The other members of the king's party don't care about her, because she's not important to them on a power level, and so they left her behind. It's heartbreaking to watch Tanda cry for help throughout this scene, begging for one of these sworn anointed knights to protect an endangered innocent. None do. No one even pays attention to Tanda. No one acknowledges her. The people in power have abandoned their duties to Lawless as they have to the small folk. As Tyrion puts it in his next chapter, 
Cersei considers Lawless to be, quote, a, bo- a bovine lackwit, less than human, and everyone else pretty much seems to feel the same way. The protectors, the guardians, the shield that guards the realms of men, it was all just an image. In execution, power corrupts and only looks after itself. If these powerful people aren't protecting Lawless, nor the starving small folk, why should they remain in power? Why shouldn't they be toppled and killed? A violent fate, to be sure, but does the status quo not embody violence as we've just seen it play out? I think about how Mark Twain described uh, the, the French Revolution. There were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons, the other upon a hundred millions. But our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with the lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? What is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror, which we've all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over, but all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness, or pity, as it deserves. It's the question of of whose lives matter, and the same thing can be said on American shores about the Civil War. People have lamented the loss of life, but as Lincoln himself argued in the moment, that if, if every blood, you know, soaked by the lash and the history of slavery had to be, you know, met, had to be responded with one drawn by the sword, then so be it if justice be done. Yeah, I think about, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but Ta-Nehisi Coates said there's something similar about there being acts of violence that precipitated. Uh, in slavery itself was an act of violence that could only be met by violence, which is the Civil War. And I think we're seeing some of that here in King's Landing. Uh, and I'm reminded of one of those heartbreaking moments in, in the hedge night when reading about how no one gives a shit about Lolly Stokeworth here. Heartsick, dunk, wheeled, thunder, and raced back and forth before the tears of pale, cold man. Despair made him shout, Are there no true knights among you? Only silence answered. The silence that the supposed best knights of Westeros give Lady Tanta that the royal family gives her is really kind of gut-wrenching in this part of the chapter. Lolly's is definitely the most vulnerable member of the royal party. She was only there because Lady Tanda was attempting to curry favor with the Queen Mother by showing face at a stupid ceremony. And now she's missing and no one but her mom cares. The primary damnation the narrative lays on the last just is how they've stolen the throne, despoiled the realm, killed thousands of innocents, and damned tens, if not hundreds of thousands more due to starvation that Tywin is inflicting by burning the Riverlands. But let's also not forget that the Lannisters also fail at the most basic feudal norm, which is protecting their vassals or even giving a shit about their vassals. And even if you can't be bothered to care emotionally about Lolly Stokeworth, just in terms of pure mercenary politics, the Stokeworks, the Stokeworks are essentially the, the one tether to food that's coming in from King into King's Landing at this point in the story, as, as Tyrion thinks about back in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 4. Half of the food they ate these days came from his lands, or Lady Tanda's, Rosby and Stokeworth, or Lady Tanda's. Rosby and Stokeworth lay near the city to the north and were yet untouched by war. The Joffrey, Cersei, the Kingsguard, really even Tyrion too, the Stokeworths are expendable, as Lady Tanda will find out in A Feast for Crows with Cersei, and Lollys finds out here in A Clash of Kings. It's, 
damning. I, I can't think of a better word. It's damning on the Lannisters what's happening to this girl. It's a reveal in a moment of crisis that the overlapping protections that are supposed to make the system work just aren't real. Lord Giles Rosby reports that the High Septon was shrieking prayers as the mob swept over him, but as with Aaron Dampere in The Forsaken, the gods aren't listening. Like the people in power, the gods are not tending to their flock, instead abandoning them to decay and death. There are no good masters here. Jalabarzo saw Preston Greenfield riding back to help, the knight trying to do his duty, protecting the High Septon, but in this context, it only got him killed. And this report gets bloodier as it goes, stripping away the face of power, shredding the pretense of doing justice as Tyrion promised. He is left only with rage, and he immediately directs that rage at Joffrey. He is, quote, dimly aware of a maester asking if he's injured. All he can focus on is his hateful nephew. Joffrey's crown is encrusted with the shit that was thrown at him. Not exactly a subtle metaphor, but as with this chapter as a whole, sometimes you really just need to be blunt. Joffrey's rule is nothing but shit, from the lies that put him on the throne in the first place to the atrocities he has committed as king. George will make the same point, of course, with Tywin's horse shitting before Joffrey and the throne after the Battle of Blackwater. Joffrey has learned nothing from this challenge to his rule. As George writes it, Joff is excited by all this once it's over. His blood is up. He's ready to kill them all for fun. And so Tyrion slaps his king across the face, shoves him to the ground, and kicks him, calling him a blind bloody fool and a spoiled, witless little boy. This is unquestionably a cathartic moment for the reader as well as Tyrion, fitting into the cathartic role of this chapter as a whole within the framework of A Clash of Kings. As with Chiswick's death in Arya 7, it's like we've broken through the firmament and proved that these overpowered abusers can be hit back, they can be brought low. As Tyrion says in the show, I just struck a king, and yet my hand did not fall from my wrist. You are not ordained, you are not divine, you are an upjumped landlord, and that's it. We desperately want to reach through the page and shake Joffrey because he's being so hateful and so obstinate and just the worst in all of humanity. We can't do that, but Tyrion can. So we project ourselves into him, the sudden shock of recognition heightening the emotional intensity necessary for catharsis. Tyrion speaks for George and us in calling Joffrey a blind bloody fool who endangered countless people, yet comes through himself unscratched. The frustration of power as it unfolds. You shield yourself from consequences for your actions. Everyone else must suffer for them. And Joffrey believes that's how it should be. Moreover, in real-world terms, I can't help but see a resonance here. What did when, when Tyrion yells at Joffrey that you set your dog on them with Sandor, what did you think people were going to do? Just bend the knee and, and you know, be <laughs> meek while, while the hound lopped off some limbs? Similarly, currently, what did powerful Americans was gonna ha- imagine was going to happen when they set their dogs on people? Did they expect marginalized, depressed people to just meekly bend the knee and go on dying? Well, it turns out they didn't and won't. And one of the more interesting touches, I think, uh, is that George, when he's doing these moments of intense catharsis, is that he ends up souring them for characters, and especially point of view characters in the story. 
You have Danny's Dracarys moments famously in Astapor as that fist-pumping hell yeah moment of exhilaration when the good masters get what's coming to them and get it good and hot. But then at the end of A Storm of Swords, Danny learns that her ramshackle, half-assed ruling council and plan that she had in place has all fallen to pieces and her entire council has been murdered by Cleon the Butcher. Sounds like a great name. Great person to rule the city. It's not. And then it is for dragons. Young Kai marches on Astapor and the cell swords butcher and enslave, butcher thousands of people and enslave the rest. Here in Clash, Joffrey has universally proven himself an unfit king and Tyrion slaps him and kicks him out of a rage. We pump our fists, same as we did when Tyrion did this back in his first chapter, back in the Game of Thrones, when Tyrion slapped Joffrey twice for being a brat about Bran, because to quote Jamie Lannister from season one of The Throne Show, have you heard, have you seen it? It's pretty good. It felt like justice. But when we take that wider look at Tyrion, in the story, we see the consequences of the act. Yeah, it feels good, but it also damns Tyrion, providing foundation for how guilty Tyrion appears for poisoning Joffrey at the trial. Moreover, to narrow the lens just a bit, does slapping Joffrey around really change his behavior? Does it make him recognize the error of his ways as Joffrey go, oh, I was being a psychopath. Now I know not to be a psychopath because I got slapped around by my uncle. No, it doesn't. Joffrey is going to continue his reign of terror, and really he's only going to be restrained by the arrival of Tywin and the Tyrells at book's end. Even then, when a Stannis loyalist, remember the scene at the end of, of Sansa's chapter, declares Joffrey a black worm and that a cleansing fire will come, it's fucking metal. It's great. Can't wait to get to that scene. Joffrey reacts in a very Joffrey way. Joffrey lurched to his feet. I'm king. Kill him. Kill him now. I command it. I feel Tyrion, right? I mean, we both do. We, we don't both are feeling this because it's extremely enraging to watch what Joffrey is doing out on the streets of King's Landing. They let him out of his cage of the Red Keep and he's fucking it up royally in both senses of the word. And I feel the righteousness of like Tyrion's hand in a sense. And it feels really good to read that. And it really like, yeah, get that. But is it good? I don't think so, actually. I think you nailed it, sir. I mean, as Machiavelli said, as Machiavelli said, one has to mention that men should either be well-treated or crushed, because although they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries, of more serious ones, they cannot. Therefore, the harm that is done to a man should be so serious that one does not stand in fear of revenge. And Tyrion has broken that maxim. He has wounded Joffrey in, the, in the, such a way that leaves Joffrey free to take revenge upon him. And, you know, even more so, it reflects poorly on us, I think. George is challenging the reader to critically examine our own emotional reactions, to draw a distinction between what feels good in the moment and what will actually secure a better world in the long term. These individual acts of violence provide the rush of catharsis, a feeling that the world has been made right, but catharsis, like apotheosis, is always temporary. Striking back in force against Joffrey is the only tool available to the masses, but Tyrion has tremendous power in his hands, yet he only ever uses that power to manage Joffrey, to shape him, keeping him in power, guaranteeing that his atrocities continue. So while we might instinctively cheer Tyrion on, sharing his rage, his need to force Joffrey to suffer a taste of the suffering he has inflicted, what good does it really do, as you ask? All it does is make Joffrey hate Tyrion more, and not only Joffrey, but Cersei and the Kingsguard. As you say, this comes back to bite Tyrion at the trial for Joffrey's murder, when this is used as evidence he killed Joffrey. Now, Tyrion didn't kill Joffrey, of course, but he wants to. As he thinks in this scene, he might have done more to Joff than slap and kick if he hadn't been stopped. Blood produces blood. Violence begets violence. The lions savage each other while the people suffer, and justice falls by the wayside. Throwing down Mad King Aerys didn't save the world. 
and slapping Joffrey won't either. George is insisting we move past catharsis in favor of true lasting justice. Tyrion, Tyrion, meanwhile, moves past Joffrey to Sansa, who is nowhere to be found. Mandon Moore, her knightly shield, sworn to defend the young, the innocent, and women, abandoned her to the mob in favor of defending Joffrey. Once more, we see how the incentives of power corrupt the values of knighthood expressed in the stories and songs. Mandon Moore forsook his oaths and his orders because he loves his power, and his power ultimately derives from Joffrey. And so Sansa, like Lawless, gets abandoned to the mob, even though they aren't responsible for the suffering of the people. While Joffrey, and Tyrion, and Cersei, who are responsible due to their power, are saved by that very same power. Same dynamic can be found at Storm's End that we were talking about in Davos too. The Turncloak Lords suffer less than Davos, even though Stannis considers their crimes to be worse than Davos's. Moreover, these Kingsguard Knights are cowards. They love their armor and their swords as tools to show off and to protect themselves from consequences, but not to protect others at risk to themselves. Cersei, who is untroubled, as George puts it, says the knights were right to abandon Sansa for Joffrey because Joffrey is all she cares about here. Her responsibilities to the rest of the realm are meaningless to her. Yet she does want them to go back and find Sansa now that Joffrey's out of danger, because as Tyrion says, if Sansa comes to harm, Jaime is as good as dead. That's what the Lannisters really care about, not Sansa in herself, but her utility as a political pawn, the possibility that she can be used to get back the person they do care about. Moreover, they're still ignoring Tanda as she begs in the background for someone to rescue Lawless along the way to rescuing Sansa. No one cares about that because Lawless is not politically useful like Sansa. She's worth nothing in the game. This worldview, reducing people to cogs in the system, which to be clear something the Starks do just as much as the Lannisters, is precisely the system the people are outside or rioting against because that worldview has starved them. Tyrion is not challenging that worldview, but he knows deep down how shameful it is, which is why he keeps losing his temper at Joffrey and his Kingsguard. This allows Tyrion to vent his simmering pent-up rage at the lack of justice in Westeros, but that lack of justice is also precisely what's keeping him in power. He roars at the Kingsguard to take off their cloaks if they're so afraid of what the mob will do to them. The signifiers of power, the white cloaks that are supposed to speak to unquestionable moral authority, have become targets, emblems of irresponsible power that has lost the consent of the governed. But if they take off their cloaks, well then they lose their shadow on a wall. Then they become mere enforcers, clear swords for hire, and these men like to think higher of themselves. But are they actually higher? Eh. No. I mean, the White Cloak, though, works, functions as a uniform, right? It's a fantasy, pre-modern modern culture ranger tab where, you know, soldiers rarely had the same armor and armament. Uh, the red, the gold, and especially the White Cloak stand in for a uniform that you would see on a, on a medieval soldier. And um, so almost 10 years ago now, I was at a ceremony where an older lieutenant colonel was retiring and he broke down the middle of his speech, his farewell speech, sobbing because he said he always felt like a superhero when he put on his uniform and he wasn't going to be able to feel that way anymore now that he was retiring. The, the White Cloak confers a lot on these guys. You can kind of get that sense from how Boris and Marin are acting, kind of shamefully, kind of not, giving them honor and an identity grounded in hundreds of years of history 
some glorious, some not so much. And I'm <laughs> if you just just because we do this, this kind of AU in my mind once in a while. I'm just imagining Barristan choking on his rage at Boros and Marin, asking if, hey, would it be okay if we maybe left our cloaks back at the Red Keep? Is that okay with you guys? You cool with that? While we go into the city, please, so we don't get murdered, would that be okay? I just just imagine Barristan just, just having a, a fit at that. These, uh, as you were saying, though, these jabronis are what you say they are. They're swords for hire, really. They're in it for the honor the uniform confers on them, but they're nothing more than the hollow drums that Tyrion thought the Kettle Blacks were. These guys don't actually care about defending the king, defending the powerless, defending the innocent. They care about looking good in a uniform. Yeah, I've known lots of people in the military who have been like that, unfortunately. I know lots of people in real life and other professions who are like that, unfortunately, too. They exist purely on the surface. Tyrion calls them cowardly, brainless, and ugly. And Boros Blount responds, who are you calling ugly? It's a classic <laughs> joke construction a la Han Solo when the, when Princess Leia says, you, you stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. And Han Solo says, who's scruffy-looking? Like the person responds to the least insulting part of the insult just to show how shallow they are. You know, uh, Boros doesn't really care about Tyrion calling him stupid or, stupid or cowardly, but ugly, no, he won't take that. And part of this is because Boros is a superficial man, concerned only with appearances. We see that regarding the cloak itself. But it's mostly because Tyrion himself is ugly, at least as far as the eyes of the beholders are concerned, and the people around him use his ugliness to make them feel better about themselves. They use his stature the same way. I may be a cowardly fool, Boros Blant can tell himself, a gutless crony who abandoned his knighthood vows in favor of being a bootlicker to a sadistic child, but at least I'm still prettier than the imp. All these pyramids of power, these different but interlocking structures, everyone using what power they have over each other, and once more there is no justice to be found. Boros moves to threaten Tyrion, as Tyrion threatened Joffrey. Bronn protects Tyrion as the Kingsguard protected Joffrey. The hierarchies of authority spring to life to inflict violence, and no one is doing anything about the suffering outside the walls. So what prevents further bloodshed here? Do cooler heads prevail? Do all these varyingly powerful people remember their duty to the powerless outside? Nope. They are interrupted, instead, by Sandor riding briskly in on Sansa's horse, with the girl herself behind him on the saddle, arms clasped around her savior. And this is George doing what he arguably does best in A Song of Ice and Fire. Present the glorious image of chivalry, and then twitch the curtain to show you what's behind it. Sandor and Sansa are writing right out of the stories and songs. The valiant knight and the fair maiden, the innocent and the guardian, an imperiled soul plucked from hell and brought to deliverance by a self-sacrificing hero. The horse, the armor, her arms around his broad chest. It's all here, the perfect storybook image. And then you think about it for a second. And it all comes crashing down. The values that the storybook image is supposed to exemplify. The better world that chivalry is supposed to protect. This world is still a fallen one. A forsaken one. Sandor belongs to the Kingsguard, but he is no knight. He tells us this over and over. And why is he not a knight? Because sometimes the knights are the monsters, as Mira Reed says. Sandor was put through unimaginable pain by his brother who became a sworn and anointed knight despite his atrocities, who remained a sworn and anointed knight despite committing many more atrocities. And Sandor saw from that that there is no justice to be had here. As Melisandre put it in the show, the only hell, the only hell is the one we live in now. 
The stories and songs beloved by young Sandor lied to him and abandoned him to fire and blood. Knights do not protect the powerless, they are part of power. Sandor has, in this moment, backed up the songs and stories. The word made flesh, the image made reality. This is how the world is supposed to work. But Sandor only had to save Sansa in the first place, because the world does not in fact work like it's supposed to. She was only in danger because the system has failed, because the people are starving, because the songs lied. The danger that threatened the fair innocent princess was not a dragon. It was not some unknowable dehumanized foreign foe like the White Walkers. It was the very people that are supposed to be protected by the system of chivalry embedded in the stories. And she told them she had no bread to give. Sansa is an embodiment of power, but she does not practice it herself, not yet. She cannot correct the system. But why should that matter to the people? Why, how, how should that distinction be clear to them? They can't get at the Lannisters, but the Lannister cronies abandoned Sansa, so they're going to take out their rage on her. Sandor saves her from that, as a true knight should, but in the process, cut off a man's arm. This image haunts Sansa, arguably traumatizing her, because even life-saving violence is violence and speaks to a world that cannot seem to be at peace. So even as the chivalric image is briefly fulfilled, the power of it fades immediately back into a world that structurally does not support the values of that image. It was an exception, and the rule takes back over. As Sandor says, he has returned Sansa to her cage. She has not been saved at a, a deeper, more meaningful level to her. She is still a prisoner of power, and so too are the people outside the walls, no matter what these individual heroes may do. Sandor has shown up the other Kingsguard, being a more true knight than any of them despite not being a knight. While they were cleaving to power and abandoning their vows, he put himself in danger to save an innocent. I like that. That's really, really good. Um, meditation about Sandor Clegane, who is a minor, minor character, all things considered, is really, really good. And I think Sandor shares a similar role to Brienne of Tarth in moments like these. These not knights defending the weak and the innocent. They embody no chance and no choice here at the right of King's Landing and with the orphans at the Inn and a Feast for Crows. Edmure Tully is another such, as, we'll t- as you'll talk about a little bit later on, who is doing something to save his people from the onslaught of war criminals marching towards them at River Run. The problem, though, as you're pointing out, is that their acts of charity, compassion, and goodness don't solve the problems of a violent, fallen world. And, buddy, I can hear the Augustine you've been so eloquently talking about (laughs) in our Forsaken episodes coming out. It's lovely. I love it. It's so great. Uh, Too often we think of the violent, fallen world as an external thing, something we need to resist from evil men all around us. The only thing stopping uh, evil from progressing is good men, as Edmund Burke once said, because I'm always quoting Burke in these episodes. The truth is, is that the fallen world exists within us as much as it exists in others outside of us. Sandor Clegane saves Sansa in this instance, and then in the next Sansa chapter, he'll hold a sword to Sansa's throat and tell her that killing is the sweetest thing after she tries to thank him for saving her at the riot. And then Sandor will brag about all the types of people he's killed before declaring that he doesn't need to fear anyone because he bears the sword. As you're pointing out, Sandor Clegane, though, is also a victim of the violent world. His face is a testament to that. But he's taken the lesson of the violence visited on him and embraced it as something of his own mantra, his own mentality, at least for the moment. We'll talk about that when we get to the Quiet Island Feast for Crows. There's a parallel here between Sander and the mob in King's Landing. They've been the victims of a violent aristocratic hierarchy that oppresses them on the reg. And the lesson they've taken from their oppression is to wield violence right back, even to Lolly Stokeworth and Sansa, when honestly they didn't have it coming. 
the lesson you receive from being hit over and over again is to hit back. And that's what makes it so hard for these individual acts of justice to change the system. The wheel is unbroken and keeps on turning. Tyrion hears that fire is spreading in the city and says that they can lose all of Flea Bottom as long as the wildfire is untouched. And you can see his point. They lose the entire city if the wildfire goes up in flames. Tyrion is defending the people from the fate Eris laid out for them. But as with Sansa on the streets, the people are only in danger from the wildfire because of the decisions and the worldview of the powerful. Tyrion and Cersei ramped up wildfire production, and Tyrion will burn his own men alive with it at the Battle of Blackwater in order to hold on to power. As with Edmure at the Battle of the Fords, Tyrion is protecting people from a problem he caused. And unlike Edmure, he doesn't even have the pretense of a chivalric worldview. He openly says, we can lose all of Flea Bottom if we must. And who's we there, Tyrion? <laughs> the people in power? Sure, you can lose all of Flea Bottom, but the people who live there can't. Once again, we see that these questions are abstract for the powerful, who are somewhat detached, squinting down at the lives of the powerless. The fire is only there. The danger only exists because of how the powerful have been conducting themselves from that removed position. And this undercuts the core of the chivalric worldview expressed in both oaths and stories. We keep the people safe. But what if you're the ones endangering the people? As I said about Melisandre, what if you are the terrors in the night? Sandor was the only one here to act like a worthy authority figure. And as a reward, Tyrion immediately sends him back into the fire back into the hell that taught him about the evil, corrupted nature of power in the first place as a child. So much for heroism. Tyrion then turns back to the actual knights, trying to get them to help clean up the mess, go out and tell the people to stay off the streets. They refuse. Their place is beside the king. They have allowed fidelity to power to overpower what is supposed to be the core of knighthood, service to the powerless. You can see some echoes of what Jamie says to Catelyn at book's end of A Clash of Kings. Vows and vows, they make you swear and swear. Obviously, these Kingsguard vows are less in significant conflict than what Jamie faced in during being a Kingsguard during Aerys Targaryen's reign, as well as being at the end of Robert's Rebellion. But this is a spot where George plays with these themes with far lesser stakes than the ones that Jamie dealt with historically and what he deal with as the story progresses. In a way, this kind of works as foreshadowing foundation for Jamie's theme at the end of A Clash of Kings and his entire arc going forward and becomes a point of view character in A Storm of Swords. I, in fact, I kind of argue that this is part of the entire narrative structure and the point of knights in A Song of Ice and Fire to have these conflict of vows. From these bozos to middling knights like Aris Okart to Jamie to Barristan, the vows that these knights are in, the vows that these knights have kept are in constant conflict with one another, ensuring a consistent narrative tension. It's a good turn on Martin's part. I agree. They're, they're always providing a different way through the scene as they flip-flop between their different self-interests and interests to the larger system in which they're embedded. And I love the detail that Cersei, quote, rears up like a viper in response to them refusing. The Lannisters are often compared to a viper's nest, ever snapping at each other and everyone else. As with Tyrion slapping Joffrey, there is a catharsis to be found here, yet George undercuts it in the big picture. It is definitely fun to watch Cersei tell these assholes off, but she's not doing it in the name of justice, she's doing it in the name of power. Do what my brother says, because he is the hand and speaks for the king. Tyrion just lets her rage, as he says, because he senses at some level how useless it is. His frayed and fevered thoughts have moved on, now dwelling on Shay. 
Tyrion goes in search of Shaga, only to be confounded first by the guard's refusal to fetch him, and then by Shaga having passed out drunk. I think this is George reminding us that there is no objective, universally applicable political framework. For Tyrion, the ground is falling away from under his feet. For the clansmen, this is just another day on the job. <laughs> just like how the Kingsguard care more about their own status than anything else, these clansmen are still focused on their own internal politicking, on what it means to be a stone crow versus a burned man. Shaga, meanwhile, slept right through the riot. It's meaningless to him. As an outsider, none of the politics and culture of King's Landing makes sense to him. It must always seem like a riot. He only passed out in the first place because the water is so dirty and disgusting here compared to the clean flowing streams of his mountain home, and so he sticks to drinking booze. In other words, he slept through the collapse of Lannister power precisely because of how shitty conditions are in King's Landing under the Lannisters. He can't even drink the water here. That's how bad things have gotten. No wonder the people are rising up. Moreover, as Bywater tells Tyrion later in the chapter, one of the reasons the people hate him is because of Shaga. <laughs> in the midst of the city suffering and collapsing into chaos, all Tyrion cares about is his own personal paramour, his own interests. He set her up in a nice manse while the people on the streets starved, and now he sends out one of his unaccountable secret police into the streets to keep her safe. No one else, though. The hand of the king could not possibly care less. Yet, as the night wears on, Tyrion realizes that his public responsibilities will have to outweigh his personal pleasure. The situation is simply too bad for him to ignore it via sex with Shay, and he must stay and reckon with the bloodshed. As I said, what makes A Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 so special, one of Tyrion's best chapters and one of the best chapters in A Clash of Kings, is that it's not just about the riot itself. Instead, George is exploring the framework of power, the social, political, and cultural understanding that fed into the riot and leads out of it. He is showing us not only that things are bad, and not only how things got bad, but also why things aren't going to get better. And that is great political storytelling. It really is great political storytelling. It's why Tyrion's arc remains a fan favorite in A Clash of Kings, and why Tyrion's story in Season 2 of Game of Thrones is a fan favorite as well. But as we're going to discover next week, Tyrion is holding all of the power, all of the cards over his subordinates, let's say. The power dynamic he wields against Shay next week is similar to the one we see with Cersei and Lady Tanda here in Tyrion 9 and Tyrion and King's Landing as a whole. Tyrion gets to decide who he protects, Shay, and what parts of the city are worth saving, not Flea Bottom. The discrepancy in the power furthers the divide between the haves and the have-nots in this city. Small folk may want to be left alone, but they're not being allowed to, so they make their peace, is that the right word? I don't know. And negotiate with power in the ways they can rioting. Lady Tanda and Shay become suck-ups to power, and when they step out of line, they get slapped, murdered, or abandoned. Others choose to resist the Lannisters, but at what cost to the city? We're finding that out in this chapter as we we veer away from the, the ride in the daylight towards the nighttime, towards when the action scene has faded and you're just left with the aftermath, just left with the ripple effects and the fallout. By the time Jocelyn Bywater turns up with the butcher's bill, the darkness has closed around Tyrion, literally and figuratively. It's gloomy in his chambers, his dinner has gone cold, and his mood is one of anger and despair. He roars at his servants and sends them scurrying away when they try and start a fire. A small detail, but emphasizing the abuses of power at play in this chapter. These servants have nothing to do with the problems plaguing Tyrion. They're not at fault. Tyrion, however, sees them not as equal human beings deserving of dignity and respect as they go about their work, but nameless barbarians upon whom he can safely vent. 
They're like a stress ball to him. I'm angry, and I'm going to make that your problem, even though you're trying to do your job and help me out. Now, of course, Tyrion losing his temper is not the equivalent of Joffrey ordering Sandor to cut through dozens of people. But they spring from the same hierarchy, the same way of looking at the world. Tyrion is not nearly as bad as Joffrey, but we are seeing the reasons Tyrion cannot solve the problem of Joffrey. Is it any surprise that Joffrey has grown up with these attitudes? He never saw any other way to be. He wasn't raised by anyone with a more humanitarian take. The adult Lannisters either ignore Joffrey's crimes or look upon them with confusion and dismay, ignoring how he is just ripping the polite face off their own worldview, as Big and Little Walder Frey do vis-a-vis the adult Freys. Joffrey has not transformed the Lannister way. He has merely made it less convenient and workable than it used to be, and the adults are unwilling to face that. You're right, and we talked about this back in Sansa's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, but this atmosphere and this behavior by Joffrey's lackeys, for lack of a better term, it's endemic of all of the people that are holding positions of authority in King's Landing that owe Joffrey some sort of fealty. In Sansa's first chapter, Aerys Oakheart was putting on the gloss of respectability on Joffrey's rule by being by by his very presence, even though he was ashamed at the blows he was ordered to inflict upon Sansa. Here, Tyrion, I think, is performing in a similar way, but on a macro political scale. And here's why where I think George's writing is so good and kind of subversive, actually. We're inside Tyrion's mind, and unlike Theon, who is doing cruel, awful shit on page, Tyrion has declared from the outset of a Clash of Kings that he wants to do justice. And like you were saying, he's not Joffrey here. But he is propping Joffrey up. He is giving his reign the veneer of respectability. Oh, sure, Joffrey's bad, but how much worse would he have been without me? Tyrion there to restrain him, right? That's subversive because, yeah, it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it is true that Tyrion is restraining Joffrey's worst impulses at times. If Tyrion wasn't there, then Joffrey would have been able to commit all sorts of worse atrocities than he's able to commit at the present. But by being a present, stabilizing presence in King's Landing and at the Red Keep, Tyrion enables Joffrey to commit atrocities. So, what do you do? Life is never simple. I'll just leave you with one question. Is Tyrion Lannister the medieval fantasy equivalent of General Jim Mattis? <laughs> I mean, it's that, that give and take. You want to believe you can ameliorate the situation and make it better by your presence. But but you have to face down the cost of that, of what you're taking on, what you're responsible for, what, what blood is on your hands. And Jocelyn Bywater comes to try and force Tyrion to face down that reality, starting with the bare blunt facts of who has died during the ongoing riots. The list is topped, as Tyrion says, by the High Septon. The list itself is a microcosm of a society on the brink of collapse, a reflection of its values. It's arranged by George to poke holes in it, as with the list of people arriving or not through the gates of the Red Keep earlier in the chapter. George is displaying a structure here in order to dismantle it for us. The High Septon comes first because the gods sit atop the fiery ladder, but now all these structures have been inverted and the High Septon has been brought low. Have the gods fallen with him? Tyrion notes that starving men take a hard view of priests too fat to walk, perfectly summarizing the corruption at work in the halls of power. The High Septon is supposed to be the bridge between the physical world and the spirit world, the embodiment of God's grace on this fallen earth. But earlier in the chapter, he was just wasting everyone's time with his self-indulgent droning over Marcella before she left. Tyrion couldn't even hear his words, and so neither could the reader. So much for the voice of God. God has no voice here. We are forsaken. And so the High Septon cared more about stuffing his face than helping the starving members of his flock. 
The latter saw his deceit, his greed, his corruption, and so they literally ripped him to pieces. And as viscerally awful as that is, I can't say I mourn him exactly. And Tyrion knows all this, yet that doesn't change his mindset nor his policies. As with Stannis and Theon elsewhere in this book, being smarter and more empathetic than his peers doesn't really mean anything to anyone but the reader if it's not reflected in his actions. The starving men Tyrion describes are, in his mind, as much an enemy to him as Stannis. The starvation is a given as far as Tyrion is concerned, rather than a condition he could change. Moving on down the list, down the social hierarchy, encapsulated and endangered by this butcher's bill, we have a dead Kingsguard knight. The Kingsguard wear white, holy and pure, the light of the seven as one, which is then separated into the individual rainbow rays of each deity in turn. But, as you say, Jamie argues later in this book that the image is only an image, papering over both the atrocities and general human frailties of those wearing the cloak. Sometimes the knights are the monsters, as I said earlier. And even when they're not, they're just confused, flawed humans, not angels cloaked in dazzling sunlight. Preston Greenfield tried to be a hero out of the songs here, and not only did he die for it, not only did he fail to save the High Septon, but his snow-white cloak was defiled, covered in his blood, turned a crusty red-brown. The gold cloaks couldn't even find him at first, because they were looking for the image. They were looking for the white, the untainted purity of a system that works, blessed by the seven who are one. But God is dead, power corrupts, and the system does not work. The High Septon was ripped to pieces as he prayed for deliverance, and Preston Greenfield's white cloak has been swapped out for a crusty, bloody one. And that's what the lived reality of Westeros looks like. The shadow on a wall has faltered and failed. The image fades, and catharsis provides instead a bleak truth. Next step down the pyramid, we find another knight, though not a Kingsguard. Aaron Santagar, as Sandor noted, was taken down by mere rocks. All the shining swords paid for by the taxation of the masses didn't serve him against their rage, like a stormtrooper going up against the Ewoks. His head is red pulp inside a crushed helm. Military might was of no avail, and behind that surface of power we are mortal men. Per Euron, men are meat. Yeah, and it's kind of a neat narrative turn that the farther down we go through the list of casualties, the less guilty people actually become. Aaron Sentikar is the Red Keep master at arms, the one that Roger Cassell went to when he and Catelyn arrived in the city back in the Game of Thrones Catelyn 4, when Catelyn came to warn Ned about the Lannisters and what they've been doing with Bran. To Roderick, Aaron Sentikar was a, quote, vain but honest man worth trusting. And we also don't hear about Aaron Sentikar participating in the Lannister coup or taking part in any of Joffrey's atrocities. But he still benefited from being within the wall of the Red Keep, getting the best food, quote, earmarked for castle and garrison yeah it's a, it's a great point it's these intersecting ladders of of authority and privilege over how much power you have over people versus how many how many resources you get and there are there is a relationship but it's not a one-to-one relationship and yet that's going to seem completely abstract and beside the point of the people starving outside one more step down we find lawless stokeworth not killed but gang raped left to wander naked through the streets and she suffers immensely because there is no justice to be had in King's Landing. The people in power don't actually protect the young, the innocent, the women who have not been given the tools to protect themselves. They abandon them. The starving peasants, as we were saying, have been hit all their lives, and shockingly the lesson they have learned is to hit back. Is Tyrion not the same in his own way? 
And this is, of course, not to excuse the gang rape of Lawless, which is horrifying, and each individual man who chose to take part chose to take part. But it's to point out that the total lack of power over one's life corrupts as surely as the overabundance of power. Both of these things just take away your humanity. And so we near the bottom of the power pyramid, and the specifics of Bywater's list appropriately give way to tatters of uncertainty, because power stops caring once you get to this point. Tyrek is not dead, but missing as is the Septon's crown, and that these are repeatedly linked together as if they're equally important, emphasizes the inhumanity of power. This is a mindset pervasive among the elite, that where this crystal crown is matters as much as where this living person is. Why? Because the crown embodies wealth and power. That mindset is what produced the inequalities that led to the riot in the first place, treating an object as equally important as a person. Yet even in the arrangement of the report, we see that nothing is going to change. Right. And I think part of the condemnation directed against the High Septon by the small folk is not that the High Septon is a hypocrite, though he is absolutely that. It's that he's, as Jamie puts it, a fat fraud. The High Septon doesn't actually believe anything about what he was droning on about in the docks when he was dispatching Marcella off to Bravos and Dorn. The religious office he holds is merely a tool to enrich himself and expand his belly. That fat part of the fraud equation is a major part of why the starving masses tear the high septon apart in this moment. But the fraud aspect highlights something that's much more long-lasting. Tyrion dismisses the search for the high septon's crown as meaningless when real people are dying or missing, and he's right in the immediate sense that people's lives, greater than signed, a symbol of wealth and power. In the longer term, though, Tyrion, Tywin will reestablish the shadow on a wall, creating a crystal crown twice as tall as the one lost during the riot and organizing a search for the original crystal crown that was lost, only finding shards of it. What both men miss is that the crown serves as a stand-in to remind the faithful of God's power on Planetos. There has to be real substance to the faith, and if that substance is empty, if the highest leaders of the faith are fat frauds, the people will throw them off for something real. Now, <laughs> I'm not arguing that the faith is real. By all accounts, the sevens are actually frauds themselves as the seven aspects of God. But the people believe that divine power rests in the gods as seen through seps and through the clergy. If the clergy are shown to be wanting, they'll the people will get new clergy, ones that will be even less to the liking of the Lancers than this sept, high sept, and the next one that follows. That's a good point. They're going to use the faith as their vector to get into power and get back at all these people. That, of course, that was going to, is going to wait for a Feast for Crows. We're just seeing the, the early kind of uh, tremblings and stirrings of that here in A Clash of Kings. And so from here, we step down from the nobility to their servants, the Gold Cloaks. And their deaths are numbered, but not named. Far more of them suffer than the nobles, despite not having say in it. And they are the lapdogs of power, shields around these abusive, corrupt thieves, and die in their place, like whipping boys. One more step, down to the bottom, the small folk themselves. No one had trouble to count how many of them were dead, and that's the whole point. They're not people in the eyes of power. They're ants. You don't trouble to count their dead. You don't trouble to support those who were still alive. In the system in which they are embedded, their lives don't matter. The people rose in response to that realization, and the powerful have learned nothing from it. Even when Tyrion tries to respond to the Butcher's Bill with some humanity, it's only for his own family, only for Tyrek, and then only because Tyrek's father was kind to him. He's still in the bubble, and Jaslyn Bywater gets his most prominent moment in the story as he tries one more time to burst his patron's bubble. 
You told me you wanted the truth. Always. There is a clear parallel to the Stannis-Davos dynamic at Storm's End. The knight delivers hard truths, and the king, or hand in this case, both absorbs and rejects those truths. The hard truth in this case is that Lannister power is on the brink of total collapse. Their legitimacy has failed. They can only hold on to the city through application of brute force, and even that, as we've seen, is provoking backlash. These are the wages of ruling through fear. Not only is terrifying a populace into acquiescence a bad thing in itself, it lays the ground for chaos the moment said populace decides they hate you more than they fear you, or that they fear the death by starvation to which you have sentenced them more than they fear you. The kettle is close to boiling, as Bywater says. Disease is rampant in the city, as is petty crime, and the food supply is just about to run out completely. In such circumstances, the risks of revolution start to seem lesser, or rather they just start to seem moot because the present is so bad anyway. Again, it does not take a great deal of insight to draw connections to the current American environment. Disease and poverty exacerbate the collapse of power under specific epically bad leaders. Indeed, they demonstrate the collapse of power. The argument for direct action is that the system isn't going to correct itself. Powerful people will never voluntarily give up power. It's the only way to change. Power respects only force. That's where power came from in the first place. Direct action with a credible threat of force to back it up is the only way to earn the attention of power. And this doesn't necessarily have to take the form of a guillotine. Direct action can include mass strikes, nonviolent occupations of government offices, etc., American police forces were created in many cases to break exactly such strikes and protests, with a soupçon of slave-catching ladled over in the South. We can see in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 9, a reflection on the essential question. Who, exactly, are the police here to serve and protect? Are they here to serve and protect the populace at large, or are they here to serve and protect power? Most people who have actually dealt with the police one-on-one -on -one know that they respond far more to the property rights of influential wealthy people than they do help random victims of murder, rape, and petty theft. You are often lucky to get them to fill out paperwork at that point. As with Fleabottom and King's Landing, American policing treats isolated chunks of the population as enemies under their occupation. This is not because every individual policeman is an incorrigible racist, although many of them are. This is because of the incentives of the institution as a whole, built around protecting their resources and power from democratic oversight. They can harvest blood and treasure from poor people, especially poor black people, because those people do not have the power to strike back. Democracy has failed them. One party openly preys on them. The other offers lip service and little more, continually shifting resources away from marginalized communities while expecting applause for painting Black Lives Matter on streets. Elected officials take money from police unions and so do nothing. The elected officials build highways through these communities, giving contracts to their own companies and their friends' companies, cutting their deals on the golf courses they built instead of affordable housing. Power corrupts all of them. Gerrymandering, stripping convicts of the right to vote, the failure to make Election Day a national holiday, the failure to secure enough, enough locations to vote, as we've seen increasingly in primaries recently. All of this is what makes Vote Blue No Matter Who as a solution to this ultimately hollow. For me, the question of whether rioting is a good response to this state of affairs is a shallow question designed to distract from the truth of our history. It's an inevitable response, because every other way of calling attention to, let alone solve, the problem of American bodies under occupation of American money and American force has been rendered unworkable by American power. 
On one hand, A Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 is germane to these discussions, because that kettle-boiling sensation of a population that has taken this shit for too long. As Jocelyn Bywater tells Tyrion, this is not just about Joffrey, nor even just about the lack of bread. It's about Tywin sacking the city during the last war, something for which there was no justice, no redress, everyone just tried to move on. Similarly, in real life, it's folly to pretend that the issues plaguing the United States just came about recently. BLM as a movement may only be a few years old, but the horrors to which it's responding are our country. They're not ancillary, an unfortunate side effect of American power we can correct along the way. They make up American power. We never were a free country. We have pretended to be. A shadow on a wall. Historical memory belies the notion that we are dealing with the excesses of some bad individuals here. This is how it has always worked, and so goes it in King's Landing. On the other hand, Westeros is ultimately a fictional world, ruled by its god and creator, George R. R. Martin. It can reflect the real world, but never in an easy one-to-one process. There isn't really no racial component to the inequalities of power in King's Landing. Unlike in American history, there was no specific group used to scapegoat and suffer for society's ills, dividing the powerless against each other on racial lines. The struggle in King's Landing is more purely a struggle between classes, and as Bywater warns Tyrion, the gold cloaks are starting to develop class consciousness. In American cities, police officers who are well-paid and benefited relative to other laborers at this point increasingly live outside the cities they police, further cementing the relationship between the police and policed as occupier and occupied. You don't even live in this city. That's not the case in King's Landing. As Bywater notes, his men are largely drawn from the small folk. They walk the same streets and eat the same food. What Bywater refers to as mutterings from the gutter defines the current American state of unrest. Here in our world in 2020, it has not quite progressed to open talk of treason in the barracks, as well as the guild halls and marketplaces. The gold cloaks don't get the drive home to a nice cul-de-sac in, like, Rosby after a day cracking heads in Flea Bottom. They're stuck there with everyone else. As such, many of them are starting to agree with the rioters that Lannister power is unacceptable. Team Joffrey is getting us all killed, and they have to go. Also, unlike modern police forces, the Gold Cloaks are not exactly functioning as a tight, coherent unit, disciplined to stay loyal above all to the Force and each other. That's that's not quite how they function. Right, and I think like in a medieval historical context, there wasn't something like a police force around in kind of the time frame that George is playing with historically. In fact, George's ideas of gold cloaks or a capital police force doesn't really have a historical connotation. And there was a recent really good Ask Historians post on Reddit about policing in 12th century London, in which the uh, the poster, who is a historian of, tw- of 11th to 12th century Anglo-Saxon and Norman England, said, In Anglo-Saxon England, vigilantism, not a town guard or much less police force, was more or less the quote-unquote default method of conflict resolution between equal members of society. There was no real distinction between vigilante justice and quote-unquote official justice, nor did independent courts, lawyers, etc. exist at this point in England's history. The gold cloaks then kind of come across to me as anachronistic to a medievalish historical time period that A Song of Ice and Fire is kind of based off of. But I wonder at this idea that Cersei and Janos brought about in having more police to save the city, not a thing that's been argued about in recent American history. And I've been in and out of government bureaucracies most of my adult life. And boy, is the idea that more of something means that it's a better of something apply as really bad idea. You attach a number like increase the number of gold cloaks to 6,000, promote ahead of peers, said to be elite ILE, and you have a quantifiable and OER bullet for your performance appraisal. 
The issue is that it's not truly about the quantity of gold cloaks as Jasmine Bywater states. It's the quality. Mm, that's exactly right. So many of the gold cloaks are new, signed up by Cersei and Jenna Slint, and they only signed up to put food in their bellies. Another example of how these police forces depend on social inequalities rather than helping to solve them. You know, the United States military often actively recruits among poor people because so many of them have no other way of going to college and climbing the ladder. It offers an opportunity for them. Because of that, the U.S. military tends to be more diverse than U.S. police forces, and the gold cloaks do feel more like our military in that regard. They are, after all, preparing for a battle against external foes, not just trying to hold on to King's Landing itself or their Lannister patrons. And in Bywater's eyes, as well as Tyrion's, the riot was a dry run for war a rehearsal for the Battle of Blackwater. And it's not looking good. How can we hold the city against external foes if we can't hold it together before those external foes even show up? We can't govern, let alone win the war. Worse yet, our failure to govern is making our external foes more attractive to those rising up from underneath us. As Bywater says, part of the discourse dominating King's Landing has to do with how much better things were under Robert. And so... How much better things might be under Stannis as king instead of Joffrey. Stannis, being Stannis, fails to take advantage of this opportunity. As Davos notes mournfully at the Blackwater, Stannis persists on flying the Stranger's Banner, in multiple meanings, of R'hllor, rather than the welcoming sign of Robert's crown stag. But right now, that is of little comfort to Tyrion, because the gods that are worshipped by the people of King's Landing, namely the Seven, are said to be punishing the city for the crimes of his family. The sparrows are on the rise, as we were saying earlier. Tyrion sums all of this up as, They hate my family. Which is both true and overly personalized. Tyrion can't quite step outside the perspective of his faction to look at the larger picture here. Moreover, he can't step outside himself. He asks what the people think of him, personally. Just as Stannis asked Davos what the people thought of Renly's death and the twincest. And as with Stannis, Tyrion rejects any and all insights. Bywater tries to avoid the question, saying Tyrion should ask Varys instead, but Tyrion, like Stannis, persists, and Bywater, like Davos, gives in and confesses. They hate you most of all. You are public enemy number one. While you've been scheming and politicking and screwing Shay, they have been cursing your name on the streets of King's Landing. The injustice of it chokes Tyrion, and you can understand why, as he says, Joffrey is the king, and it's Joffrey who's been committing brazen, sadistic, cartoonish atrocities against the populace, including during the riot. No one is more hateable than Joffrey, as the fandom can attest. George wrote him that way, a sneering little punk that we, like Tyrion, just itch to slap. But the people don't quite see it that way, just like they don't see Eris in quite the same way that George has led we the readers to feel about him. Despite the evil inequalities of power in this society and the ways in which they have been abused, the people of King's Landing are as much a product of their environment as anyone else, and have not abandoned monarchy as a whole. The culture of monarchy in which the king is sacred, the literal embodiment of the realm chosen by the gods, is too strong. It's a powerful shadow on a wall. Instead, as happened in the real world, the source of suffering is said to be the king's evil counselors poisoning his mind. Same thing happens on Dragonstone. King's men like Crescent and Davos insist that Melisandre has literally taken charge of Stannis. Even those rising up against the system have been shaped within it, and cling to its values even while bruising and bloodying their fists against its structures. 
Moreover, Joffrey is a child, which has a huge impact on how the people in the streets see him. It should have an impact on us as well. Not to excuse Joffrey for what he's done, after all, he would only be worse if he were allowed to live to adulthood, but even the best and brightest 13-year-old would still be a 13-year-old, and ultimate responsibility lies with the adults in the room. Bywater might be pulling a Davos again here in that he is gently folding his own critique of his patron into the detached report of what the people in general think. His grace is but a boy. How much can Tyrion really blame Joffrey for what's going on? Was he not the one who pledged to do justice? Has he not failed? Is this really the injustice that's choking Tyrion given what's going on here? What about all the other injustices he has witnessed and in some cases taken part in? Only when you suffer an injustice does it suddenly feel real to you? This is how power works, Tyrion. As Bywater points out, it's not like the rest of the people in power are... It's not like the rest of the people in power are popular by comparison. No one likes Cersei and no one likes Varys. The people have been under cruel occupation by them for years. None are friends to the commons. But then again, Cersei and Varys were around during those happier times under King Robert. And Tyrion was not. So he is associated with the unhappy times. And here we see the same gap between the political narratives of the powerful versus those of the powerless that we saw at work with Eris' reputation in the Riverlands. The fallout of Eris' paranoia and pyromania was largely confined to the nobility, or so it appears because almost nobody knows about the wildfire. And while Cersei and Varys have certainly abused their powers over the people, the people used to be able to rely on peace and prosperity in the meantime. And now they can't. The bread is gone, the circuses are silent, and when the people look around to see what changed, they see Tyrion Lannister, Hand of the King. On one level, this seems as absurd to us as it does to Tyrion. Tyrion came in response to the collapse of power in King's Landing amidst civil war. Blaming him for the chaos and suffering would seem to confuse cause and effect. Moreover, many of these specific criticisms that Bywater brings to Tyrion's attention are bunk, Pycelle is not wise and gentle, no more than Chano Slint is bluff and honest. These are stereotypes, images simplified from afar, not reality. Nor is it true that Tyrion means to claim the Iron Throne for himself. This is all part of the public image of the imp, the same image Boros Blount was responding to, the assumption that because Tyrion is ugly on the outside, he must be ugly on the inside, a curse sent to Tywin by the gods. Yet it is true that Tyrion filled the city with clansmen and sellswords that do not answer to anyone but him, and Tyrion does not bother responding to this charge. Also, Tyrion has allowed these mistaken arguments about his treatment of Janus and Pycelle to spread. He has not created his own counter-reputation. Why not publicize Janos's crimes and Pycelle's corruption? Why not mitigate the damage to his public image done by his secret police by, say, giving away bread to all these people shouting for bread all the time? Because in Tyrion's mind, his negative reputation is a given, a guarantee by a fallen world that hates him for his stature. They will only ever see me as a monster. I am hideous and misshapen, as he thinks to himself. And there's nothing he can do about that, so why try? As such, Tyrion abandons the part of his public image that is under his control. And Tyrion came riding into the city at the head of a column of unwashed mountain clansmen and sellswords. He already has several things going against him from his dwarfism to being a Lannister to also being well-fed, as he notes. So the people are already against him before he even starts ruling in King's Landing. 
Hey, wait, wasn't that part of that advice Tyrion gave to Jon back in the Game of Thrones using the ways you're already behind the game as armor and forming identity around it? I know. I'm repeating myself every single episode about Tyrion, about that line from a, from a Game of Thrones. You know, I, I was as I was reading through your notes and then rereading this chapter, I was kind of wondering whether this is kind of the same sort of greeting that Daenerys will receive when she arrives in Westeros and when she arrives outside of King's Landing. She's done nothing to earn the enmity of the people, but the optics surrounding her will set off all the same alarm bells that Tyrion does, except for this time it's going to be magnified several times over. He, she, is a dwarf woman arriving at King's Landing with an army of sellswords and mountain clansmen, Dothraki. His, her father, isn't much loved in King's Landing due to the things they did in the past. Like Tyrion before her, I think Danny will fail to form a counter-identity to combat the insults, names, and rejections that the small folk of King's Landing will employ. And I think we're seeing the foundation for what happens with Danny in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring here in A Clash Kings with what happens with Tyrion. I think that's a great comparison. And I think there's there's also a comparison within A Clash of Kings between what Tyrion do, is doing here and what Stannis was doing at Storm's End. And that Tyrion is, is dodging the implications of the very insight he asked for because he believes, as Stannis does, that he simply cannot be loved. All of that comes back not only to the people at large, but specifically Tyrion's family and how he has been rejected by them. In this moment of literal and figurative darkness, Tyrion wonders whether his father was right to hate him. A heartbreaking thought. Not only because no one deserves to be hated by their parents, but also because Tywin's hatred of Tyrion was never about Tyrion's actions. Sure, Tywin genuinely disapproves of Tyrion marrying Tysha, etc., but it goes deeper than that. Tyrion doesn't live up to Tywin's image of House Lannister, and Joanna died giving birth to him. As such, Tywin would resent Tyrion, denying him love, no matter what Tyrion ended up doing with his life. So why should he try? Yet Tyrion still always thirsted to earn his family's love, even as it became less and less possible. And now, facing his family's downfall, he blames himself. What a tangle of personal and political grievances this is. Tyrion blames himself for that which he is not guilty, and excuses himself for that which he is guilty. And that's why this is my favorite Tyrion chapter, really. Not only for the peerless catharsis on multiple levels, not only for the blunt, brutal exploration of power but for how perfectly it summarizes how Tyrion, specifically, finds and loses himself in the middle of all of this. His alienation brings him deep sorrow, but he cannot find his way out of it because both his power on one level and his lack of power on another level have corrupted him. Being politically powerful has detached him from the suffering of those without such power. Being personally powerless in his physical life, in his family life, has broken his heart apart. Tyrion is left unable to even conceive of what justice would look like for himself or for the people of Westeros. All he can do is castigate the masses for hating him, even as he hates himself, echoing his father in both cases. He externalizes that hatred onto Varys, Bronn, and Shay as the scene goes on. A eunuch, a sellsword, and a whore, as he thinks of them. What does that say of me that these are my confidants? Well, this is hardly a value-neutral assessment. (laughs) Are Tywin's well-heeled, well-spoken advisors any more useful to him? Arguably much less so from what we saw them at the end of A Game of Thrones. Same for Stannis. That's why he said at Storm's End he would prefer fewer lords and more smugglers at his back. Tyrion is not rationally taking stock of his mistakes. He is simply taking the self-loathing he internalized from his father and projecting it outwards. I am just bad by my very being, and the people around me are bad. That's what the masses are picking up on, and they're right. 
but I hate them, as Dad is right, but I hate him. This mindset makes it impossible for Tyrion to treat himself or his subjects better, so even though as... So even though he's more insightful and compassionate than his father or his sister or his nephew, he can't get at it. It doesn't end up mattering in practical terms. It can't reach the surface. That image of him persists, and by the time we get to the end of A Storm of Swords and all the way through A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion has decided to embrace it rather than fight it. I can't defeat what you think of me, so I will be the monster you think I am. This is inevitable, as the riots are inevitable. Hit people all their lives, and they will learn to hit back. Tyrion, too, will rise up in force after finally being pushed too far. These power dynamics happen between the powerful, as they do between the powerful and the powerless. Power worms its corruptions into every crack it can. Even in this isolated chamber, literally far removed from the starvation and violence on the city streets, these power dynamics persist. Really well said, man. And I think like Tyrion's self-loathing is a learned behavior. And I wonder whether one subtext is that Tyrion didn't really have to do anything to earn the position as acting hand of the king in A Clash of Kings. Recall that conversation from the end of A Game of Thrones Tyrion 9 between Tyrion and Tywin. Why me? Tyrion asked, cocking his head to one side. Why not my uncle? Why not Sir Adam or Sir Fleming or Lord Serret? Why not a bigger man? Lord Tywin rose abruptly. You are my son. That was when he knew. You've given up for loss, he thought. You bloody bastard. You think Jamie's as good as dead, so I'm all you have left. Tyrion was the Jamie substitute and, quote, all the Tywin had left. So he's here in King's Landing, defying his father with Shay and declaring he'll do justice. Subtext. The opposite of what Tywin Lannister did as the head of the king? Yeah. But there's really been no leadership arc that's crafted Tyrion into a skillful political actor. He hasn't had years in the shit like Jon Snow is going to have in his arc leading up to his election as Elsie of the Night's Watch. Instead, it's that famous surname and that fabled gold that greases every wheel. These were all the apprenticeships, these were all the apprenticeships that Tyrion, that Tywin deemed sufficient for Tyrion to act in his stead in King's Landing. That has to really grate on Tyrion subtextually. Now, Tyrion is doing a better job than anyone expected. He's not dull. He's quite smart. He reads. He's into history. He's a good guy in that way. He honestly thinks he's doing the best job possible despite all of the people around him, Joffrey most of all, making his job impossible. Tyrion's been trying to say, fuck you, dad, the entirety of the book. But then Jaslyn tells him that the small folk hate him anyways. Jesus, how crushing is that? I mean, like you were saying, Tyrion thinks that the small folk are adapting Tywin's mindset. But are they actually hating Tyrion for the same reasons that Tywin hates Tyrion? Not entirely, no, but that's an entirely human reaction to getting news like that. That Tyrion would identify the hate as being from the same exact pathway that he got from his father his entire life. But the small folk hate Tyrion for different and arguably more justifiable reasons. As I was saying, both power and powerlessness can have corrupting effects. Tyrion is too removed from the small folk on one hand to really engage with their grievances, but he's also just used to being on the bottom of House Lannister, being kicked by his father, so he just conflates the two together. And as I was saying, even in this room, those power dynamics persist even when he gets away from the people. Bronn walks in with no patience for the literal gloom Tyrion has allowed to settle around himself. Bronn insists on making a fire, because he has lived a poor life with no fire, so he appreciates them when he gets them. He has faced the same material deprivation as those on the streets, which Tyrion never has, allowing for the alienation and detachment I was talking about. But unlike Davos, Bronn's poverty has not engendered empathy and mercy in him. Instead, Bronn has learned how to hit back, and he is in it for himself and only himself. 
Tyrion refuses to eat because of how disgusted he is with himself, his family, and the whole of humanity. Bronn, who never believed in any of those things, has an appetite. All he's ever believed in was getting enough food at the end of the day. So he grabs Tyrion's dinner, refusing to respect the dictates of power, just like those down on the streets. And Tyrion responds with irritation, even though he wasn't going to eat it. I didn't give you leave to eat my food. Why can't you just starve with the rest of the peasants? This is the riot and its aftermath in microcosm. Even in face of this potent challenge to power, neither the powerful nor the powerless can imagine any other way to structure things. The powerless grab for all the resources they can, individually hold. The powerful can only tut and threaten them. Nothing changes. Here at the end of the chapter, with everything reduced and deconstructed and rendered ash as the fires burn outside, we finally get a concrete proposal put forward by one of the small folk, no less. And that proposal is to kill Joffrey. That's what Bronn puts forward as the solution, not because Tommen will do a better job by the peasants, but because he'll do as he's told, like kings should. And this is a revealing little moment, part of the political philosophy of a clash of kings in these Tyrion chapters. In Bronn's view, the font of authority, the king, is just another piece in the game, being moved by players half-hidden in the shadows. In our real world, our elected public leaders often feel like pawns being moved by unelected power brokers. And Bronn doesn't want to change that, he just wants it to work more effectively. And you can see the real world connections. There's often certain criticisms of Trump come with the longing to restore a better, simpler era of American power that really never existed. What existed was presidents who did what they were told, who served the dictates of power in a more subtle, smooth, elegant, comforting fashion than the cartoonishly buffoonish Trump. Braun has climbed the ladder and now walks the halls of power. So his interest is not in taking power down a peg, but in capturing more of it for himself and his patron. Joffrey is an obstacle, not to the justice Tyrion promised and then abandoned, but to the serene execution of power by Tyrion, and therefore by Bronn. George is building on the revelation with which he ended Tyrion too. In that chapter, Tyrion rid King's Landing of Janos Slint and his baby-killing cronies, only to realize that he had his own baby-killer on the payroll with Bronn. In this chapter, Tyrion is forced to face down the backlash created by his peers, his family, and himself, and when he casts about for solutions, all he finds is Bronn saying, that they really just need to seal their own power with Joffrey's blood. And this chills Tyrion. Kinslaying is a step too far for him. It won't be for long. Eventually, after being held responsible for Joffrey's death despite his mercy here, Tyrion will turn vengefully on his family, starting with Tywin, hating them as much as the people. He threatens to take, he threatens to take Bronn's head in this scene, wielding the power of punishment that has produced this uprising. But all Bronn does is laugh, because the power no longer intimidates, it no longer holds sway. Bronn just reaches out and casually takes his food away, and even though Tyrion is no Joffrey, he still reacts to this challenge like a spoiled brat. Varys begs them all to take heart, and George fades the chapter out on a punchline. Tyrion wants to take a literal heart. He can think of several options. George doesn't make clear who he's thinking about, but really Tyrion could be thinking of anyone. Varys, Bronn, Cersei, Joffrey, the hearts of everyone who rioted, everyone who ever hated him for his stature, and ultimately, his own. 
Tyrion's heart has been scalded by rejection once more, and as his story goes on, he decides that the pain of it is just too much to bear. Why love anything, including himself, if he's never going to be loved back? Power has cut everyone off from each other and themselves in this chapter. Tyrion's own face in the mirror is hateful to him, but so is everyone else's. He rode into King's Landing promising justice, but really in this chapter, that promise breaks all over the city. And I kind of have a question as we get to the end of this chapter. Is Tyrion a nice guy? No, no, not like a genuinely kind, gentle, friendly person. The letting TV tropes take over for a moment, as I often do when I'm trying to figure out a good way of defining things. The guy who wants a prize for basic decency. Tyrion is shocked that people hate him despite everything he's done. And what is it that he's done that's good? Well, he saved Sansa from a bloodier beating by Joffrey's Kingsguard goons. That took some courage, honestly, giving Tyrion a little bit of credit here, given that no one was doing anything about it and the king was ordering it. He also fired Janice Lynn and exiled him to the wall, as you were mentioning. He ordered Allardim to be murdered on the way to the wall. What else? Well, I'm kind of struggling here to name something that's objectively good in, in some sort of moral rather than politically advantageous circumstance for the Lannister sense or something that isn't just neutral in some other sense. Most people, though, tend to be more neutral. Tyrion, though, isn't as neutral. Yeah, he's not Joffrey, but he's kind of venturing into some bad villainous territory in Clash of Kings on occasion, and then he eventually embraces that mentality, come a storm of swords and a dance with dragons, after, as you were saying, he has cut himself off from his own heart and embraces the view of hatred that he feels for everyone else and feels that everyone hates for him and just kind of lives with that self-loathing. Much like the riot, Tyrion's dark turn in Storm and Dance, it doesn't come from nothing. It's foundation throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. But you can feel, really feel, its pulsating core of heartsick hatred at chapter's end as Tyrion sits in the darkness with his two best friends, maybe, perhaps. And it really is kind of sad for Tyrion, tragic ultimately, and maybe we'll have a redemption arc at the end of his story. We'll see. He's only able to hold back these demons for now because he's still in charge, but as soon as he's not, they fester and take over, and that's that's going to be a, there's going to be some skin crawling, but really powerful chapters to go through and storm and dance with you, sir. Absolutely. So that about wraps us up for the discussion portion of the episode, transitioning to foreshadowing groundwork. So we get a uh, another mention here of Sander Clegane's fear of fire after Flea Bottom goes up in flames, and he goes out this time, just this time, to retrieve his horse. But come the Blackwater, Sander isn't going out for one last sortie with all the death and wildfire flying about. Fuck the king. Yes, we always got to build up that part of Sandor's backstory, not just because it's important to, you know, emotionally understanding him as a character, but because it motivates his present day decisions. We're going to get another reminder of that in Sansa's next chapter when, as you were mentioning earlier, they have a conversation about what happened during the riot. And then, yes, it pays off big time when he runs from the from the devastation of the wildfire at the Blackwater. And unfortunately for him, he runs right back into fire because he ends up with the Brotherhood <laughs> and Beric Dundere, and he just, just can't catch a break. Sandor Clegane, what you going to do? Poor Sandor. And indeed, uh, speaking of fire, as Tyrion worries about the fire reaching the wildfire in this city, which it doesn't quite yet. But as we've talked about before, as a bunch of people have theorized, the fire will probably indeed reach the wildfire when Danny comes to town. And this is, again, one of those elements in The Clash of Kings that is just teased at, hinted at, given in microcosm, and will pay off in full later. Right. And George was asked in a by in a fan email in 2013 about the wildfire, whether there was still wildfire caches underneath the city of King's Landing. He responded... Yes. So we think that that's likely going to be have a major impact come the winds of winter. And we also know from Tyrion's fifth chapter in A Clash of Kings that the wildfire, or actually it's going to be from Tyrion's 11th chapter in A Clash of Kings, that the wildfire has 
been quite powerful recently. And Pyromancer Helene asks if if there's been, if there's dragons about, and uh, Tyrion's like, no, of course not. There's no dragons about, but there is. Yikes. Oh well. Uh, finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, Jason Bywater says that he doesn't trust the new men that he has, that he's recruited to the Gold Cloaks, which turns out to be sadly correct as his fellow Gold Cloaks will drag him from his horse at the Battle of Blackwater and murder him. And um, yeah, I, that guy just didn't have it coming. I feel like we're talking about this in the pre-episode we do for our uh, our High Lords and, and ladies and our small council patrons. But of all the people in the interior and Sansa's King's Landing storyline, like Jaslyn is the one guy who actually has something regarding virtue and it's sad to see him go i agree and you think you think how how much better things could have gone for Tyrion in a storm of swords if jaslin had still been around how much easier his fall from power might, might have been able to might have been able to cushion himself or at least counter cersei's narrative regarding what he was doing while he was hand of the king a lot could have been different but you know alas but for an arrow that 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 one frag really does change things so it's a you you gotta mourn the man but we'll talk about that more of course when we get when we get to the blackwater itself Mm -hmm. so moving to the theory portion of the episode this uh this chapter definitely drops a juicy question in our laps that we're going to be dealing with here and that is the question of the fate of tyrick lannister who vanishes here and is yet to be seen so where in the world jeff is tyrick (laughs) lannister Yes, where is our wet nurse, our famous wet nurse, who of course had a a small ha- a small role to play in Robert Baratheon's death back in a Game of Thrones, which does kind of factor into what we're going to be talking about with why Tyrion Lannister disappeared or was disappeared. So let's talk a little bit about the search for Tyrion Lannister after the riot himself. So in A Feast for Crows, Adam Marbrand tells Jamie that he led the search himself at Tywin's command, but he found no more than Bywater did before him. The boy was last seen a horse when the press of the mob broke the line of gold cloaks. Afterward, well, his palfrey was found, but not the rider. Most likely pulled him down and slew him. But if that's so, where is his body? The mob let the other corpses lie. Why not his? Good question, Sir Adam Arbrand, one that we're going to theorize about here. So in Clash and Storm, Tyrion and Tywin send gold cloaks and red cloaks throughout King's Landing in an attempt to find Tyrion Lannister, but they have no success. Most in-universe characters believe that Tyrion is dead, but as Adam Arbrand indicated, there were irregularities with Tyrion's disappearance, which leads most fans to think that he's still alive in some sense of the word. Moreover, George himself has indicated ambiguity about Tyrion's fate in two instances. First, in 2001, a... A fan asked him, was the file on Tyrek closed in a storm of swords with the hint that he ended up in a bowl of stew? And George says, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But then he stated in a 1999 online chat that we will find out what happened to Tyrek Lannister in a future volume of A Song of Ice and Fire. Questioner, simple question really, will we ever find out what happened to wet nurse Tyrek? George, yes, you will. I try not to leave too many loose ends, but sometimes you need to wait. All right, so that kind of opens up the question as to what exactly happened with Tyrick Lannister. Again, it's not confirmed in the books, which leads us to theorizing. And the theory <clears throat> slash fact is that Varys did it. As of the recording of this podcast, Tyrick's fate has not been revealed, but there are strong indications that Tyrick is alive and in the custody care of someone, namely Varys. Jamie gives the strongest case for Varys snatching up Tyrick in a feast for crows, thinking... Tyrick had served King Robert as a squire side by side with Lancel. Knowledge could be more valuable than gold, more deadly than a dagger. It was Varys he thought of then, smiling and smelling of lavender. The eunuch had agents and informers all over the city. It would have been a simple matter for him to arrange to have Tyrick snatched during the confusion, provided he knew beforehand that the, that the mob was like to riot. And Varys knew all, or so he would have us believe. Yet he gave Cersei no warning of that riot, nor did he ride down to the ships to see Marcella off. 
So what Jamie's indicating is Varus has means, motive, and opportunity. But I think there's a potential for an additional motive for Varus to abduct Tyrek Lannister during the riot. When Tyrion confronts Varus about his whereabouts during the riot, Varus replies that he's been about the king's business. Yeah, the king. Tyrion being Tyrion immediately loses focus and starts growling about how Joffrey sucks, which, yeah, he sucks a lot. But this podcaster wonders if Tyrion misses Varys being a little sly here. He doesn't say which king he's referring to. Mm-hmm. Could he be talking about, oh, I don't know, say Aegon the Young Grift, possibly, potentially? Yeah, of course it is. Of course, having Tyrek in his pocket would help in figuring Cersei's being behind Robert's death, which helps for the propaganda coup that Varys is hoping to pull off in King's Landing when Aegon arrives. But the additional layer is that by having a Lancer in his pocket, Varus might have plans for this kid to be part of his, what I'm calling, quote, realm in a box concept for young Grift. And that's shorthand for the potential that Varus is planning for Aegon to take the Iron Throne and immediately gain legitimacy by having ready vassals among the Southern High Lords to rule as Lords Paramount in his name. As an example, if we go beyond Tyrek, there's the potential that Varus might snatch up Edric Storm, who is, of course, hanging out in Varus' hometown of Lys by the end of A Dance of Dragons, bringing him back to Westeros, potentially using him to take Storm's end. If you want to take Joe Magician's recent excellent theory video that he had, and we talked about it in episode 117, removing the Tana Bastardy by Royal Decree and naming him Lord Paramount of the Stormlands as Robert's only uh, son that he's actually claimed. Back to the Lannisters. With Jamie as king, so Tyrion Kevin now dead at the end of Dance of Dragons, Tywin and Marcella his doomed little angels, Lancel likely to meet his demise in some way come the Wind's Winter, Willem Lannister murdered by Rickard Karstark's goons. That puts Tyrek as third in line of the Lannister succession after his cousins Martin Lannister, a 13 to 15 year old boy who is probably at Castle Rock, and Janae Lannister, a three or four year old girl who is also at Castle Rock by who is also likely at Castle Rock by the end of A Dance of Dragons. So there are some hurdles for Varys to clear for Tyrek assuming the lordship of Castle Rock and the paramountcy of the Westerlands. But if the king says this Lannister is the chosen one, I really can't imagine the lords of the Westerlands would really put up much of a fight. How as we were talking about in the episode and as we talked about at the end of Tyrion's final Game of Thrones chapters, when those jabronis are told to shut up in color by an authority figure like Tywin, they ask which crane colors they can be allowed to doodle with. All of this is to say that it seems likely to me that Varys took Tyrek during the ride in King's Landing to help create a stabilizing, to help create, to help stabilize young Griff's rise to power come the Winds of Winter. But I think ultimately we'll have to see what George has up his sleeve come that sixth book, which is of course coming next week, the week after. A long time, as George said in yesterday's post. You laid it all out really well. I think that's that's the the, the best case for it. I think the fact that Jamie kind of hangs a lampshade on it and, and brings up brings Varys to our attention suggests that it's not really a huge mystery who took him, especially since yeah, Varys is very suspiciously absent for a lot of this chapter. And what might be going on is instead George drawing our, our attention to the mystery of why Varys snatched Tyrek. Jamie puts forward the idea that Tyrek is useful in terms of evidence against Cersei, and I don't doubt that's part of it. But as you say, Tyrek could also be very useful afterwards when Aegon is, is considering lords for the realm he is to rule and people who can bring fractious parts of his realm to bay. Certainly the Westerlands would be part of that if, if, if Varys is envisioning young Grift overthrowing the Lannisters. He's going to need someone to bring the Westerlands, you know. It'll be an important part of the, his his realm to keep from immediately spreading into chaos and further civil war. You know, Tyrek as a Lannister provides for an easier papering over of the succession. He would already have proved his worth and loyalty to Young Grift by fingering Cersei for for Robert's death. And you know, obviously, you can project too much in Devaris's perspective. Who knows what he's thinking about at any given moment? But if he's thinking about Dorne being natural allies for his boy. 
for you know, various lords from the Reach and the Stormlands, preferring ultimately his side to that of the Tyrells. You know, moving on up Westeros as his conquest moves, the Westerlands are the, are the next logical step. So, you know, he doesn't want to necessarily spend too much time conquering them. It makes total sense to have a Lannister in the pocket. So I, I think I agree with you there. I think it's funny to consider if, you know, maybe, maybe Varys has Tyrex dashed away in the city, or maybe he sent him over the Narrow Sea to Illyrio and Pentos. Maybe when Tyrion was in Pentos briefly, he was right down the hall from his cousin and didn't even know it. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be funny. Yeah, just imagining... Um Illyrio, like that manse is like massive and just sure. having to be like, yeah, you can stay in this room, but uh, please don't get out during these, the following times you're only exactly. you're confined to your chambers. Don't go to the Tyric wing. I mean, um, the West wing. <laughs> I think that'll be, that'll be a lot of fun to come, come the winds winner. Cause I do think that it's, it's something that George has said he's going to reveal in a future volume. He has not revealed it by the end of a dance of dragons. So likely the winds winner, we're going to see what happened with, uh, with Tyrek. And I'm, uh, one of the, what's one of those minor plot points that I'm, I'm eager to see how, how George resolves it, which should be a lot of fun. But I think that does end us up for a clash of Kings Tyrion nine part two, as always, thank you so much for listening. For those of you who are watching, we will stick around for a little bit, chat with you guys, answer some questions and stuff like that. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple podcasts, Google play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, <clears throat> Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Cummington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sweat, Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, and our newest High Lord, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies as always, and welcome to Lord Young of the Ghost Woods. Yeah, thank you all very much, and welcome to Lord Young. Very much appreciate your support every single month. So, join us next week as we stay right here in King's Landing for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 10, in which Tyrion meets a brown-nosed singer named Simon Silvertongue and learns Varys' backstory. Another really strong Tyrion chapter. It is, although nicely smaller scale than this one. It'll be nice to just do a one episode for a chapter. It'll feel like, feel like a breather by comparison. I look forward to it. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who watched us, and we will see you guys next week.